0: section 5 of our old home this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org our old home by nathaniel hawthorne section 5 lemington spa the chief enjoyment of my several visits to lemington lay in rural walks about the neighborhood and in jaunts to places of note and interest which are particularly abundant in that region The high roads are made pleasant to the traveller by a border of trees, and often afford him the hospitality of a wayside bench beneath a comfortable shade. But a fresher delight is to be found in the footpaths, which go wandering away from stile to stile, along hedges and across broad fields, and through wooded parks leading you to little hamlets of thatched cottages, ancient solitary farmhouses, picturesque old mills, streamlets, pools, and all those quiet, secret, unexpected, yet strangely familiar features of English scenery that Tennyson shows us in his Idols and Eclogues. These by-paths admit the wayfarer into the very heart of rural life, and yet do not burden him with a sense of intrusiveness. He has a right to go whithersoever they lead him, for, with all their shaded privacy, They are as much the property of the public as the dusty high-road itself, and even by an older tenure. Their antiquity probably exceeds that of the Roman ways, the footsteps of the aboriginal Britons first wore away the grass, and the natural flow of intercourse between village and village has kept the track bare ever since. An American farmer would plow across any such path, and obliterate it with his hills of potatoes and Indian corn. But here it is protected by law, and still more by the sacredness that inevitably springs up in this soil along the well defined footprints of centuries. Old associations are sure to be fragrant herbs in English nostrils. We pull them up as weeds. I remember such a path, the access to which is from Lover's Grove, a range of tall old oaks and elms on a high hilltop, whence there is a view of Warwick Castle and a wide extent of landscape, beautiful, though bedimmed with English mist. This particular footpath, however, is not a remarkably good specimen of its kind, since it leads into no hollows and seclusions, and soon terminates in a high road. It connects Leamington by a shortcut with the small neighboring village of Lillington, a place which impresses an American observer with its many points of contrast to the rural aspects of his own country. The village consists chiefly of one row of contiguous dwellings, separated only by party walls, but ill-matched among themselves, being of different heights and apparently of various ages, though all are of an antiquity which we should call venerable. Some of the windows are leaden-framed lattices opening on hinges. These houses are mostly built of grey stone, but others, in the same range, are of brick, and one or two are in a very old fashion, Elizabethan or still older, having a ponderous framework of oak, painted black, and filled in with plastered stone or bricks. Judging by the patches of repair, the oak seems to be the more durable part of the structure. Some of the roofs are covered with earthen tiles, others, more decayed and poverty stricken, with thatch out of which sprouts a luxurious vegetation of grass, house leeks, and yellow flowers. What especially strikes an American is the lack of that insulated space, the intervening gardens, grass plots, orchards, broad-spreading shade-trees, which occur between our own village houses. These English dwellings have no such separate surroundings. They all grow together like the cells of a honeycomb." Beyond the first row of houses, and hidden from it by a turn of the road, there was another row, or block as we should call it, of small old cottages stuck one against another, with their thatched roofs forming a single contiguity. These, I presume, were the habitations of the poorest order of rustic labourers, and the narrow precincts of each cottage, as well as the close neighbourhood of the whole, gave the impression of a stifled, unhealthy atmosphere among the occupants it seemed impossible that there should be a cleanly reserve a proper self-respect among individuals or a wholesome unfamiliarity between families where human life was crowded and massed into such intimate communities as these nevertheless not to look beyond the outside i never saw a prettier rural scene than was presented by this range of contiguous huts for in front of the whole row was a luxuriant and well-trimmed hawthorn hedge and belonging to each cottage was a little square of garden-ground, separated from its neighbors, by a line of the same verdant fence. The gardens were chock-full, not of esculent vegetables, but of flowers, familiar ones, but very bright-colored, and shrubs of box, some of which were trimmed into artistic shapes, and I remember before one door a representation of Warwick Castle made of oyster-shells. The cottagers evidently loved the little nests in which they dwelt, and did their best to make them beautiful, and succeeded more than tolerably well, so kindly did nature help their humble efforts with its verdure, flowers, moss, lichens, and the green things that grew out of the thatch. Through some of the open doorways we saw plump children rolling about on the stone floors, and their mothers, by no means very pretty, but as happy-looking as mothers generally are, and while we gazed at these domestic matters, an old woman rushed wildly out of one of the gates, upholding a shovel on which she clanged and clattered with a key. At first we fancied that she intended an onslaught against ourselves, but soon discovered that a more dangerous enemy was abroad, for the old lady's bees had swarmed, and the air was full of them, whizzing by our heads like bullets." Not far from these two rows of houses and cottages, a green lane, overshadowed with trees, turned aside from the main road, and tended towards a square grey tower, the battlements of which were just high enough to be visible above the foliage. Wending our way thitherward, we found the very picture and ideal of a country church and churchyard. The tower seemed to be of Norman architecture, low, massive, and crowned with battlements, The body of the church was of very modest dimensions, and the eaves so low that I could touch them with my walking-stick. We looked into the windows and beheld the dim and quiet interior, a narrow space, but venerable with the consecration of many centuries, and keeping its sanctity as entire and inviolate as that of a vast cathedral. The nave was divided from the side aisles of the church, by pointed arches resting on very sturdy pillars. It was good to see how solemnly they held themselves to their age-long task of supporting that lowly roof. There was a small organ, suited in size to the vaulted hollow, which it weakly filled with religious sound. On the opposite wall of the church, between two windows, was a mural tablet of white marble with an inscription in black letters, the only such memorial that I could discern, although many dead people doubtless lay beneath the floor, and had paved it with their ancient tombstones as is customary in old english churches there were no modern painted windows flaring with raw colors nor other gorgeous adornments such as the present taste for medieval restoration often patches upon the decorous simplicity of the gray village church It is probably the worshipping-place of no more distinguished a congregation than the farmers and peasantry who inhabit the houses and cottages which I have just described. Had the lord of the manor been one of the parishioners, there would have been an eminent pew near the chancel, walled high about, curtained and softly cushioned, warmed by a fireplace of its own, and distinguished by hereditary tablets and escutcheons on the enclosed stone pillar. A well-trodden path led across the churchyard, and the gate being on the latch, we entered, and walked round among the graves and monuments. The latter were chiefly headstones, none of which were very old, so far as was discoverable by the dates. Some, indeed, in so ancient a cemetery, were disagreeably new, with inscriptions glittering like sunshine in gold letters the ground must have been dug over and over again innumerable times until the soil is made up of what once was human clay out of which have sprung successive crops of gravestones that flourish in their allotted time and disappear like the weeds and flowers in their briefer period the english climate is very unfavourable to the endurance of memorials in the open air twenty years of it suffice to give as much antiquity of aspect whether to tombstone or edifice as a hundred years of our own drier atmosphere so soon do the drizzly rains and constant moisture corrode the surface of marble or freestone sculptured edges lose their sharpness in a year or two yellow lichens overspread a beloved name and obliterate it while it is yet fresh upon some survivor's heart time gnaws an english gravestone with wonderful appetite and when the inscription is quite illegible, the sexton takes the useless slab away, and perhaps makes a hearthstone of it, and digs up the unripe bones which it ineffectually tried to memorialize, and gives the bed to another sleeper. In the Charter Street burial-ground at Salem, and in the old graveyard on the hill at Ipswich, I have seen more ancient gravestones with legible inscriptions on them than in any English churchyard and yet this same ungenial climate, hostile as it generally is to the long remembrance of departed people, has sometimes a lovely way of dealing with the records on certain monuments that lie horizontally in the open air. The rain falls into the deep incisions of the letters, and has scarcely time to be dried away before another shower sprinkles the flat stone again, and replenishes those little reservoirs. THE UNSEEN, MYSTERIOUS SEEDS OF MOSSES FIND THEIR WAY INTO THE LETTERED furrows, AND ARE MADE TO GERMINATE BY THE CONTINUAL MOISTURE AND WATERY SUNSHINE OF THE ENGLISH SKY, AND BY AND BY, IN A YEAR, OR TWO YEARS, OR MANY YEARS, BEHOLD THE COMPLETE INSCRIPTION, HERE LIETH THE BODY, AND ALL THE REST OF THE TENDER FALSEHOOD, BEAUTIFULLY EMBOSSED IN RAISED LETTERS OF LIVING GREEN, A bas relief OF VELVET MOSS ON THE MARBLE SLAB, it becomes more legible under the skyey influences after the world has forgotten the deceased than when it was fresh from the stonecutter's hands. It outlives the grief of friends. I first saw an example of this in Bebington Churchyard in Cheshire, and thought that nature must needs have had a special tenderness for the person. No noted man, however, in the world's history, so long ago laid beneath that stone— since she took such wonderful pains to keep his memory green. Perhaps the proverbial phrase just quoted may have had its origin in the natural phenomenon here described. While we rested ourselves on a horizontal monument which was elevated just high enough to be a convenient seat, I observed that one of the gravestones lay very close to the church, so close that the droppings of the eaves would fall upon it, It seemed as if the inmate of that grave had desired to creep under the church wall. On closer inspection we found an almost illegible epitaph on the stone, and with difficulty made out this forlorn verse, Poorly lived, and poorly died, poorly buried, and no one cried. It would be hard to compress the story of a cold and luckless life, death and burial into fewer words or more impressive ones. At least we found them impressive, perhaps because we had to recreate the inscription by scraping away the lichens from the faintly traced letters. The grave was on the shady and damp side of the church, endwise toward it, the headstone being within about three feet of the foundation wall, so that, unless the poor man was a dwarf, he must have been doubled up to fit him into his final resting-place." No wonder that his epitaph murmured against so poor a burial as this. His name, as well as I could make it out, was Trio, John Trio, I think, and he died in 1810 at the age of seventy-four. The gravestone is so overgrown with grass and weeds, so covered with unsightly lichens, and so crumbly with time and foul weather, that it is questionable whether anybody will ever be at the trouble of deciphering it again. But there is a quaint and sad kind of enjoyment in defeating, to such a slight degree as my pen may do it, the probabilities of oblivion for poor John Trio, and asking a little sympathy for him, half a century after his death, and making him better and more widely known, at least, than any other slumberer in Lillington Churchyard, he having been, as appearances go, the outcast of them all. YOU FIND SIMILAR OLD CHURCHES AND VILLAGES IN ALL THE NEIGHBORING COUNTRY AT THE DISTANCE OF EVERY TWO OR THREE MILES, AND I DESCRIBE THEM NOT AS BEING RARE, BUT BECAUSE THEY ARE SO COMMON AND CHARACTERISTIC. THE VILLAGE OF WHITNASH, WITHIN TWENTY MINUTES' WALK OF LEMINGTON, LOOKS AS SECLUDED, AS RURAL, AND AS LITTLE DISTURBED BY THE FASHIONS OF TO-DAY, AS IF DR. JEFFSON HAD NEVER DEVELOPED ALL THOSE PARADES AND CRESCENTS OUT OF HIS MAGIC WELL. I used to wonder whether the inhabitants had ever yet heard of railways, or at their slow rate of progress had even reached the epoch of stage-coaches. As you approach the village, while it is yet unseen, you observe a tall, overshadowing canopy of elm tree-tops, beneath which you almost hesitate to follow the public road, on account of the remoteness that seems to exist between the precincts of this old-world community and the thronged modern street out of which you have so recently emerged venturing onward however you soon find yourself in the heart of whitnash and see an irregular ring of ancient rustic dwellings surrounding the village green on one side of which stands the church with its square norman tower and battlements while close adjoining is the vicarage, made picturesque by peaks and gables. At first glimpse, none of the houses appear to be less than two or three centuries old, and they are of the ancient wooden-framed fashion, with thatched roofs, which give them the air of birds' nests, thereby assimilating them closely to the simplicity of nature. The church-tower is mossy and much gnawed by time, It has narrow loopholes up and down its front and sides, and an arched window over the low portal, set with small panes of glass, cracked, dim, and irregular, through which a bygone age is peeping out into the daylight. Some of those old, grotesque faces, called gargoyles, are seen on the projections of the architecture. The churchyard is very small, and is encompassed by a grey stone fence that looks as ancient as the church itself. In front of the tower, on the village green, is a yew-tree of incalculable age, with a vast circumference of trunk, but a very scanty head of foliage, though its boughs still keep some of the vitality which perhaps was in its early prime, when the Saxon invaders founded Whitnash, A thousand years is no extraordinary antiquity in the lifetime of a yew. We were pleasantly startled, however, by discovering an exuberance of more youthful life than we had thought possible in so old a tree, for the faces of two children laughed at us out of an opening in the trunk which had become hollow with long decay. On one side of the yew stood a framework of worm-eaten timber, the use and meaning of which puzzled me exceedingly, till I made it out to be the village stocks. A public institution that, in its day, had doubtless hampered many a pair of shank-bones, now crumbling in the adjacent churchyard. It is not to be supposed, however, that this old-fashioned mode of punishment is still in vogue among the good people of Whitnash. The vicar of the parish has antiquarian propensities, and had probably dragged the stocks out of some dusty hiding-place, and set them up on their former site as a curiosity. I disquiet myself in vain with the effort to hit upon some characteristic feature, or assemblage of features, that shall convey to the reader the influence of hoar antiquity lingering into the present daylight, as I so often felt it in these old English scenes. It is only an American who can feel it, and even he begins to find himself growing insensible to its effect after a long residence in England. But while you are still new in the old country, It thrills you with its strange emotion to think that this little church of Whitnash, humble as it seems, stood for ages under the Catholic faith, and has not materially changed since Wycliffe's days, and that it looked as grey as now in Bloody Mary's time, and that Cromwell's troopers broke off the stone noses of those same gargoyles that are now grinning in your face. So, too, with the immemorial yew-tree, You see its great roots grasping hold of the earth like gigantic claws, clinging so sturdily that no effort of time can wrench them away, and there being life in the old tree, you feel all the more as if a contemporary witness were telling you of the things that have been. It has lived among men, and been a familiar object to them, and seen them brought to be christened, and married, and buried in the neighboring church and churchyard, through so many centuries, that it knows all about our race so far as fifty generations of the whitnash people can supply such knowledge and after all what a weary life it must have been for the old tree tedious beyond imagination such i think is the final impression on the mind of an american visitor when his delight at finding something permanent begins to yield to his western love of change and he becomes sensible of the heavy air of a spot where the forefathers and foremothers have grown up together, intermarried and died, through a long succession of lives, without any intermixture of new elements, till family features and character are all run in the same inevitable mold. Life there is fossilized in its greenest leaf. The man who died yesterday or ever so long ago, walks the village street to-day, and chooses the same wife that he married a hundred years since, and must be buried again to-morrow under the same kindred dust that has already covered him half a score of times. The stone threshold of his cottage is worn away with his hobnailed footsteps shuffling over it from the reign of the first Plantagenet to that of Victoria. Better than this is the lot of our restless countrymen, whose modern instinct bids them tend always toward fresh woods and pastures new. Rather than such monotony of sluggish ages loitering on a village green, toiling in hereditary fields, listening to the parson's drone lengthened through centuries in the grey Norman church, let us welcome whatever change may come—change of place, social customs, political institutions, modes of worship— Trusting that, if all present things shall vanish, they will but make room for better systems, and for a higher type of man to clothe his life in them, and to fling them off in turn. Nevertheless, while an American willingly accepts growth and change as the law of his own national and private existence, he has a singular tenderness for the stone encrusted institutions of the mother country. The reason may be though I should prefer a more generous explanation, that he recognizes the tendency of these hardened forms to stiffen her joints and fetter her ankles, in the race and rivalry of improvement. I hated to see so much as a twig of ivy wrenched away from an old wall in England. Yet change is at work, even in such a village as Whitnash. At a subsequent visit, looking more critically at the irregular circle of dwellings that surround the yew-tree and confront the church, I perceived that some of the houses must have been built within no long time, although the thatch, the quaint gables, and the old oaken framework of the others diffused an air of antiquity over the whole assemblage. The church itself was undergoing repair and restoration, which is but another name for change. Masons were making patchwork on the front of the tower— and were sawing a slab of stone, and piling up bricks to strengthen the side wall, or possibly to enlarge the ancient edifice by an additional aisle. Moreover, they had dug an immense pit in the churchyard, long and broad, and fifteen feet deep, two-thirds of which profundity were discoloured by human decay, and mixed up with crumbly bones. What this excavation was intended for I could no wise imagine, unless it were the very pit in which Longfellow bids the dead past bury its dead, and Whitnash, of all places in the world, were going to avail itself of our poet's suggestion. If so, it must needs be confessed that many picturesque and delightful things would be thrown into the hole, and covered out of sight for ever." The article which I am writing has taken its own course, and occupied itself almost wholly with country churches, whereas I had purposed to attempt a description of some of the many old towns—Warwick, Coventry, Kenilworth, Stratford-on-Avon, which lie within an easy scope of Lemington. and still another church presents itself to my remembrance. It is that of Hatton, on which I stumbled in the course of a forenoon's ramble, and paused a little while to look at it for the sake of old Dr. Parr, who was once its vicar. Hatton, so far as I could discover, has no public-house, no shop, no contiguity of roofs, as in most English villages, however small, but is merely an ancient neighbourhood of farmhouses, spacious and standing wide apart, each within its own precincts, and offering a most comfortable aspect of orchards, harvest-fields, barns, stacks, and all manner of rural plenty. It seemed to be a community of old settlers, among whom everything had been going on prosperously since an epoch beyond the memory of man. And they kept a certain privacy among themselves, and dwelt on a cross-road, at the entrance of which was a barred gate, hospitably open, but still impressing me with a sense of scarcely warrantable intrusion. After all, in some shady nook of those gentle Warwickshire slopes there may have been a denser and more populous settlement styled Hatton, which I never reached. Emerging from the by-road, and entering upon one that crossed it at right angles and led to Warwick, I espied the church of Dr. Parr. Like the others which I have described, it had a low stone tower, square and battlemented at its summit, for all these little churches seem to have been built on the same model, and nearly at the same measurement, and have even a greater family likeness than the cathedrals. As I approached, the bell of the tower, a remarkably deep-toned bell, considering how small it was, flung its voice abroad, and told me that it was noon. The church stands among its graves, a little removed from the wayside quite apart from any collection of houses and with no signs of vicarage it is a good deal shadowed by trees and not wholly destitute of ivy the body of the edifice unfortunately and it is an outrage which the english churchwardens are fond of perpetrating has been newly covered with a yellowish plaster or wash so as to quite destroy the aspect of antiquity except upon the tower which wears the dark grey hue of many centuries. The chancel window is painted with a representation of Christ upon the cross, and all the other windows are full of painted or stained glass, but none of it ancient, nor, if it be fair to judge from without of what ought to be seen within, possessing any of the tender glory that should be the inheritance of this branch of art, revived from medieval times." I stepped over the graves and peeped in at two or three of the windows, and saw the snug interior of the church glimmering through the many-coloured panes, like a show of commonplace objects under the fantastic influence of a dream, for the floor was covered with modern pews, very like what we may see in a New England meeting-house, though, I think, a little more favourable than those would be to the quiet slumbers of the Hatton farmers and their families those who slept under Dr. Parr's preaching now prolong their nap, I suppose, in the churchyard round about, and can scarcely have drawn much spiritual benefit from any of the truths that he contrived to tell them in their lifetime. It struck me as a rare example, even where examples are numerous, of a man utterly misplaced, that this enormous scholar, great in the classic tongues, and inevitably converting his own simplest vernacular into a learned language, should have been set up in this homely pulpit, and ordained to preach salvation to a rustic audience to whom it is difficult to imagine how he could ever have spoken one available word. Almost always, in visiting such scenes as I have been attempting to describe, I had a singular sense of having been there before. The ivy-grown English churches— even that of bebington the first that i beheld were quite as familiar to me when fresh from home as the old wooden meeting-house in salem which used on wintry sabbaths to be the frozen purgatory of my childhood this was a bewildering yet very delightful emotion fluttering about me like a faint summer wind and filling my imagination with a thousand half remembrances which looked as vivid as sunshine at a side glance but faded quite away whenever I attempted to grasp and define them. Of course, the explanation of the mystery was that history, poetry, and fiction, books of travel, and the talk of tourists, had given me pretty accurate preconceptions of the common objects of English scenery, and these, being long ago vivified by youthful fancy, had insensibly taken their places among the images of things actually seen." Yet the illusion was often so powerful that I almost doubted whether such airy remembrances might not be a sort of innate idea, the print of a recollection in some ancestral mind, transmitted with fainter and fainter impress through several descents to my own. I felt, indeed, like the stalwart progenitor in person, returning to the hereditary haunts after more than two hundred years, and finding the church— the hall, the farmhouse, the cottage, hardly changed during his long absence, the same shady by-paths and hedge-lanes, the same veiled sky, and green luster of the lawns and fields, while his own affinities for these things, a little obscured by disuse, were reviving at every step. An American is not very apt to love the English people as a whole on whatever length of acquaintance. I fancy that they would value our regard, and even reciprocate it in their ungracious way, if we could give it to them in spite of all rebuffs, but they are beset by a curious and inevitable infelicity which compels them, as it were, to keep up what they seem to consider a wholesome bitterness of feeling between themselves and all other nationalities, especially that of America. They will never confess it, Nevertheless, it is as essential a tonic to them as is their bitter ale. Therefore, and possibly too from a similar narrowness in his own character, an American seldom feels quite as if he were at home among the English people. If he do so, he has ceased to be an American. But it requires no long residence to make him love their island, and appreciate it as thoroughly as they themselves do. For my part, I used to wish that we could annex it, transferring their thirty millions of inhabitants to some convenient wilderness in the Great West, and putting half or a quarter as many of ourselves into their places. The change would be beneficial to both parties. We, in our dry atmosphere, are getting too nervous, haggard, dyspeptic, extenuated, unsubstantial, theoretic, and need to be made grosser. John Bull, on the other hand— has grown bulbous, long-bodied, short-legged, heavy-witted, material, and in a word too intensely English. In a few more centuries he will be the earthliest creature that the earth ever saw. Heretofore, Providence has obviated such a result by timely intermixtures of alien races with the old English stock, so that each successive conquest of England has proved a victory by the revivification and improvement of its native manhood, cannot America and England hit upon some scheme to secure even greater advantages to both nations? End of Section 5.